Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Cough, where we talk about all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me on this lovely Friday night is the other half of my quartet, the one and only DJ. I mean, I don't know if I would say lovely. Um, I had to uh, uh, replace a window in my house today because a bird flew into it. Oh, no. R.I.P. bird. Yeah, yeah. You know, quote the raven, never a window. (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, as if you don't already have enough home improvement projects, the nature is giving you more for your honey-do list. Luckily, it was a window I have sitting aside. So anyway, f- f- welcome to Friday. Um, we don't normally record on Friday, so uh, I apologize. We had sunshine for one day here in the Pacific Northwest, and I asked Rachel for a break so that I could go enjoy it. <laughs> we had a very, like, I was trying to figure, gauge where, where you were at conversation. I was like, <laughs> so we can record either day. What do you What do you prefer? And you're like, well... There's sunshine. I was like, okay, Friday it is. <laughs> they, um, in our neighborhood, uh, the restrictions are starting to like thin out a little bit. Ruh-roh. And they're allowed to put uh, outside seating um, out in front of a few of the places. And so we were able to go sit by ourselves and have a beer and a burger, um, you know, without uh, having to take it home. So uh, right. that was a very nice thing and then our favorite bartenders and bartendresses are back at their post wearing masks and like serving stuff with uh, with covers over the top but still also nice to see everybody again yeah (laughs) enough of our current wasteland and back to our fictional wastelands (laughs) um okay so the plan for this episode is that we are going to be finishing yes finishing uh, woohoo! Uh, the wastelands uh so we're gonna be doing a in-depth review and conversation about the wastelands book two lud heap of broken images chapter six riddle and wasteland sections one through ten so excited to talk about this I'm, like <laughs> seriously there's a lot like, of stuff crammed into this but yes. there's not a lot of stuff that happens really like i remembered that this book ends on a cliffhanger and I remember my frustration waiting for the next book to come out. But even going back, I like going back and, and reading it again, I was like, damn, Stephen King is a freaking sadist. Yeah. <laughs> this is the cliffhanger to beat all freaking cliffhangers. It's brutal. It's mm. brutal. I'm so glad we do not have to wait for the next book because, yeah, I need resolution. Even though I, you know, obviously I've read them before. Still. Still. Um, okay, so before we get into this, DJ, you know what I'm going to ask you. Can you tell our listeners about our spoiler policy? Our spoiler zone is like a music box slowly running out of wind-up crank power. When we get to that point, the notes will stop, we will sound the alarm, and let you know that there is no more music box. Okay, so what that means... <laughs> that means we'll draw a line in the sand, folks, and let you know that we are covering a spoiler. We'll give yes. you a chance to move on, and if you don't, it's your own fault. Oh, aggressive. I like it. Okay, so we don't have any iTunes reviews this week, but if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we will read it on the show, like I said last week, even if it's bad. <laughs> Terrible. Um, so, But yeah, so leave us a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. Okay, so... DJ, let's get into this. Where did we last leave our cassette? So Jake and Roland are rolling through the underground tunnel. See what I did there? And uh, they pull up <laughs> to the station, and they find everybody standing there waiting 
and uh, Blaine is asked the riddle that they cannot solve, and Roland's like, I'm coming to the rescue. And <laughs> and then he, he doesn't actually quite come to the rescue, but everybody's really excited. Uh, and so the um, the riddle is, as we, we recall, uh, my pump prime um i think it's like you have to prime my pump but my pump but my primes pump primes backwards, backwards. Yeah. there you go Something so like uh, paraphrase but yeah so Susanna kind of gets like a little uh, uh shine in her eye and is like um i i need your help roland i think i got this and uh you know so um roland pulls out his old uh hypnotization trick that he's used on jake and eddie and other folks previously and he starts to you know move the uh what is it a bullet Mm-hmm. casing across his uh, knuckles and uh inherently and instinctively everybody else knows to look away and Susanna kind of stares into it and slowly uh she says she wants to remember the face of her father well this uh sort of brings uh, uh Detta out of her and Odetta and she basically has like sort of internal dialogue where apparently the one that you wouldn't have thought would have been the math expert is actually the one who did all the math and the one that you would have thought of as the educated, more hoity-toity one was the one who did not do the math. So uh, apparently uh, she learned about prime numbers from her dad. And what was the name of the net that they described here? It the was net like of Aristophiles. And I meant to look this up, and I apologize, guys. I, I did look it up. It is a real thing. It is? Okay. It is I had never thing. heard of it, mm-hmm. it besides this book, So, but it, it's not something that I learned in, in advanced math class, so – um, I wasn't sure if that was a real thing or not. Yep, but it's real. Kind of interesting. So uh, after remembering that, she realizes kind of a way to uh, figure out all of the prime numbers that are on the number pad. And then it's kind of interesting because Susanna and uh, Detta kind of have like a peaceful relationship. Susanna, as she's uh, – Roland realizes that she's like kind of coming out of the trance after she's kind of um, upheaved this information from Detta. And – Susanna actually like lets Detta talk for a while, even as she's coming out of the trance, because uh, as in her own words describes, it would be um, rude to cut her off while she's talking, and, and that's like a completely different relationship than we've yes. heard them have in the past, and that that sort of uh, peacefulness, and then even the description of Detta is like she's um, she's not as mean. Like she calls Eddie a dumb white boy. But mm-hmm. she says it lovingly, if that's a thing. Well, and, yeah, like the 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 teeth are out of the words that she's saying. Yeah, it's like, oh, you cute little dumb white boy. It's like, okay, I guess that, that's the thing you could do. Uh, but so <laughs> it's a kind of a a different, almost more peaceful uh, Susanna internal um, monologue. And so they they uh, basically, and I see you got two stars here. Do you want me to stop so you can touch sure. on anything? So there's a couple of character moments here. First of all, this is the stuff you touched on, like the Detta Walker stuff. Like she was once kind of a major antagonist to our group. And now mm-hmm. with the integration of these char- these uh, personalities, she's twice become an asset to the group. Obviously, I have issues with the first time, but we will not rehash <laughs> that now. But the point is, is that she is someone that call on for, for help when she needs it. And we learn actually that in some ways this has always been true which is very much in keeping with the id right like you these care these other personalities are created to protect but we learned that one of the ways that she did this is that she like you said she was in charge of learning math when when odetta who were interested in literature and like the softer kinds of things wasn't interested in so she has 
always been to some degree. Obviously, it gets out of control as she gets older. But at some point in her life, Detta was actually someone who was a positive influence in Susanna's life. The other thing we learn is that she considers herself to be now the first special, which is kind of interesting, right? Like, she basically has taken, and I think it's in keeping with this change in her character, right? She now exists as, like, pull her out for special occasions, and she is a, a source of strength and a source of, like, you know, knowledge that you would never have guessed when she was, like, crawling around on the beach waiting to kill them. The other kind of small character moment is when Roland first gets to the platform and he asks for the riddle and Eddie's like, but hey, you know, like, what can we do about saving the people of blood? And Roland just shuts that down. <laughs> <laughs> He's like not even trying to hear it. And I think what that just tells us right there is that Roland is a pragmatist, but he's not a quote unquote hero, right? And instead of fighting back and arguing with him, the rest of them basically fall in line and we realize that they're pragmatists as well, which is an interesting thing to have your entire group of these gunslingers not not fall into typical heroic tropes, but at the same time, I appreciate it, like, saved us from a lot of arguing when we don't have time. Well, also, he, he kind of mentioned um, earlier that these people have been living on the corpse of their forefathers for yes. quite some time, and, like, they may actually welcome death. And and Eddie, to to some extent, still is, like, and, and Jake, to a lesser extent as well, and maybe those are the more sensitive characters, mm-hmm. um, do yeah. still, so like... Susanna didn't say shit. <laughs> yeah, Susanna's just like, whatevs, doesn't care. But well, I think Jake, she's the most Roland-like of the three of them. That's true, and, mm-hmm. like, uh, Roland, like, looks into her eyes after she starts to solve this this problem and, like, mentions a callback to Shardik mm-hmm. the Bear and that um, yes. moment when she had to, you know, pull the trigger and that fierceness that he imagined probably was in her eyes and now he sees it. Mm-hmm. And, and that is kind of um, – I think you're right. That's that's a, that's a hardened, steeled gunslinger right there, not a, not a weenie who's worried about these folks being gassed in a painful manner. Right. I think probably if there was a way that they could save them, they would consider it. But when it really comes down to it – Nothing's getting in the way of Roland getting on that train and getting towards the Dark Tower. But mm-hmm. I, I'm glad you brought up Susanna and this moment where they kind of call back to Shardik's circle. is because like the last time we saw Arcotet facing off with some sort of advanced technology, we get a lot of these like motifs around wheels and circles. In this whole section, we have another one coming up when we get on the train that we'll talk about. But Roland can, repeatedly falls back and how as a gunslinger you fall into these cycles and you follow this wheel and it's interesting to hear him. He talks about himself that way, but at this point, when he's looking at Susanna, he talks about her in the same way, mm-hmm. which is just, sort of, I think, worthy of noting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so, too. Um, okay, so then, uh, basically, Susanna's about to solve Blaine's riddle, mm-hmm. and Jake's like, but the the pump primes backwards. And uh, so she grabs a, um, a little piece of chalk out of, of Roland's poke. I, I think poke is a f- fancy term for... Like a uh, purse? I think, uh, yeah, it must be, right? Like, Okay, it's not something I'm familiar with, but maybe that's um, that's mid- mid-world speech. Uh, and uh, or, or some kind of southern slang that I'm not uh, familiar with. Um, and then uh, basically no, using... Thing, that to, you can buy a poke bag on Etsy. <laughs> a poke bag? This, that's, that sounds like 
Uh, I'm not going to say what it sounds like. It, Never mind. It, 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 it sounds saucy. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> like, that's where I store my uh, my KY hangs out there or something. Or, like, know. it's the... Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Turning red here, flushing up. Um, <laughs> so, uh, basically, Jake screams out of the prop by primes backwards. And then uh, she goes through all the numbers... Uh, backwards, basically, all the prime numbers that are in the number count that's available on this keypad. And the whole time, Blaine's kind of, like, in the background, like, taunting them, telling them, like, how uh, how he's disappointed with them and, like, the time's mm-hmm. getting nearer and nearer. And then finally, when they solve it, he's like, oh, I'm actually kind of impressed with you guys. <laughs> and then he kind of has, like, a little short monologue where he's like, um, you might want to get on the train now. Uh, in fact, <laughs> you should probably uh, run rather than walk because there's less than a minute left before the canisters in this area start going off. Yeah. And so they make haste for this big pink uh, sausage that's hanging out on the tracks. And <laughs> like a, a weird little uh, opening crack. It looks open. like it would have a poke bag. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Okay. Let's <laughs> This like weird uh, sliding doorish thing like comes open on the side, and a- as they're running in, they know that uh, Blaine has this like little um, antenna type of thing that's coming out of one of his eyebrows, and they hop inside, and the first thing they see is this like really plush cabin area, mm-hmm. and Jake looks up and notices that there's a chandelier hanging from the ceiling mm-hmm. that looks very similar to what chandelier did we see in the past rachel the one in dutch hell yep dun, dun, again dun. circles circles we're all these are all coming coming back and blaine when they're um and, and this is something really important to note too uh blaine has like a a courtesy bot type of thing <laughs> as they're getting on yeah it's like doing the normal like Welcome to, uh, you know, Blaine. He travels from here to here. And, uh, um, you know, guests, make sure you have your passes because it's against the law if you don't have your passes. And, like, at that moment, Blaine, like, shuts it down. And then you hear, like, a bleep. And the bleep, I want to make sure I underline that bleep because later on we'll find out something about some of Blaine's electronics that are no longer functioning. Yes. And I Good believe call. that's the moment that he deactivates those for fun. Interesting. I had not picked up on that. I did oh, note okay. in the section where they refer to the Imperium for the first time. Yes, that's new yes. and interesting. And it made me wonder if those are the statue faces that we saw in the in the cradle. Uh, it quite well could be. I mean, is that what the great old ones called themselves? Maybe. I mean, they're very up their own asses if they call themselves the Imperium. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, Blaine is like, in this courtesy mode, created like a statue of Roland, basically, out of ice. And he is uh, leading a horse. And uh, he's even gotten it down to the detail of like one or uh, uh, two of his fingers are missing. Mm-hmm. And like he's got his brooding shadow. And and Blaine kind of sheepishly is like, well, I didn't have very much time. Hopefully this looks good enough for you guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and so it starts weird out flex, like... flex, but okay, Blaine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it starts out with a that, as Rachel said, a weird flex. And then Blaine is kind of like uh, casual nice at the get-go, mm-hmm. which throws you a little off. He's like, yeah, welcome mm-hmm. to my cabin. You know, um, 
we're, here's a, a black screen with the green dot that shows where we're going. Here's a, here's all these beautiful couches that's so soft that you will fall asleep in for 16 hours and wake up later, you know. And then uh, he uh, makes all the walls in the ground invisible and scares them for a little bit, but does it in this like kind of hey guys, you want to see something cool? And then like makes everything go translucent so that they can yeah. see all the way down to the ground. And this starts out sort of um, like a, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm showing you what it's like to be in first class on Blaine the Train. Uh, you know, you, you get to see all around you and, like, see the cool world. And mm -hmm. then it gets sinister when, yep. like, he's like, make sure you pay extra close attention to this. And they come over this part of the city where they, before they were seeing kind of this, like, beautiful exit from the cradle um, to now they're looking at this, like, sort of slummy area of the city mm -hmm. that Eddie sort of relates to the worst parts of New York. They start to see like uh, gas escaping from the underground tunnels and all of the places where the greys used to use to enter into the subsystems of the city. And as they look down, they see both the greys and the pubes intermingled running away from these erupting uh, chambers of gas coming out of the the grounds of the city and for whatever reason he uh this is the moment where he he chooses to kind of like zoom in a little bit and you can see them running and their eyes feeling filling up with blood and mm -hmm. them like screaming in pain and dying horrible deaths mm -hmm. and and that that's the thing is like you you have this bit and then after that, they're like, and then we saw the most shocking thing we ever saw. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like this moment where like Blaine's like was being polite. And then they're like, shut it off, Blaine. And he's like, mm, nah, I'm not going to not right. going to shut it off. And, and so everybody gets uh, basically overwhelmed with that. And then they start to sort of exit the city. And the description, I believe, was as though the city sat next to the top of an elevator and someone pushed the button and the elevator uh, dropped down. Yeah. And basically, I imagine this almost is like um, Devil's Tower, if, you, if you're familiar mm, with Devil's Tower I in am. Wyoming. Yeah. Where, mm -hmm. like, the city is almost on this crazy risen pillar and the surrounding area is just this flatland that's, you know, half a mile or so lower than where the city's at. And it sort of gets into this description of almost the waste of blood leaking down into the literal wastelands. Yeah. And this is where it gets really crazy. Well, let's uh, pause before we go too much further. Oh, yeah, there's sorry. a bunch of stuff we should talk about before we get into the act. And I'm just like wasteland. flying through all this. You're like Blaine going 800 miles an hour. I know, right? <laughs> I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. So let's step back a little bit to when they get on the train with this ice sculpture like i said blaine is totally flexing right like he's like this false modesty of like oh i hope you're impressed i didn't have that much time to do it but <laughs> you know and, but really what he's trying to do is a lull them into kind of feeling like this is going to be a luxurious experience and then pull the rug out from under them but also he's trying to like really show how powerful he is and what you know he is kind of exerting his personhood to a certain degree because like you know, creation of art typically is associated with having a mind. But unfortunately for Blaine, this flex belies the fact that he was actually created as a, like a tool for service for the very people that he now has all this disdain for. And it ends up being much more of a tell 
than he thinks. And there's a little bit of back and forth between him and Roland in the section where they both kind of exert their power even before really we get into, we'll get into it when they like really start going at it. But where they inadvertently kind of give away their weaknesses at the same time. In the case of Roland, it's where Blaine mentions something about the Dark Tower and Roland's like right away wants to know more about it. And he shows the same level of curiosity and addiction to the Dark Tower that previously Blaine had shown for the puzzles. So there's a couple of interesting character moments as they begin to sort of like, like their size each other up and set up this showdown that we'll get into later in the chapter. There's also a moment where the first explosion goes off, the one that like blows all the caps off of the manholes. And we get a little bit of internal dialogue with Eddie where he, you realize he still was like holding on to this like false hope that Blaine's threats were empty. Um, and it just, I, it reinforces who Eddie is at his core. Like even after all of the, having all of his like helpful elves hope dashed to a degree, which he was not prepared for inside of Lud, there's still like that little part of him that is an optimist. It's just like ingrained in who he is. The other thing is that we get a lot of Blaine talking to the group very condescendingly. Um, you know, he sort of forgotten his role. And he's used to being around ignorant people, but as we proceed, that won't last very much longer. Susanna notices that when the Dark Tower comes up, that's like the first time that Roland actually directly speaks to Blaine. And in some to some degree, I feel like that's Roland flexing a little bit. Like he's the one that reminded the group back on the gate that Blaine is a machine and not a not like a person. They keep referring to him as a he, but he really is an it. He's a tool. Yeah. And even though he recognizes that Blaine is very dangerous, he's not in any shape going to be subservient to this train. And like the, it, it, it's not that it's, I guess I called it a flex, but really it's more just speaking to you how Roland is approaching the situation and how it's different than everybody else, which sets him up to be able to kind of confront the train in a way that none of the others can, because up until this point, they've all kind of in some ways, him. Well, they, yeah, and they responded to him in the way, because they were fearful of the stories they heard about Blaine, they responded to him in a way that is much more similar to the way the people in Ludd did as opposed to Roland. Um, and finally, I just thought it was ironic that the gunslingers are on a bullet train. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's also a, a moment in here, too, where Jake has his internal dialogue, mm -hmm. and I kind of flew past it, um, where Jake basically is like, uh, he guesses exactly where they're going to go. And then yeah. he's talking to himself like, well, don't you know, Blaine, you're so smart, but you don't know that they wrote a, uh, you know, a book about you. Yeah. Do you know this lady? Do you know that it's just you with another name? And then there's another little kind of fun bit when uh, Blaine's still in courtesy mode where uh, he offers to play an instrument. And I don't remember what the name of the instrument a was. A Wagog. A Wagog, and he's like, it casually just throws out there, like, yeah, Wagog's played on the whatever level of the tower. And it's kind of mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, uh, like an old, um, uh, what's the Scottish instrument? I'm uh, bagpipes. Um, bagpipe. And like, they're like, wait, what? And then Blaine's just like, done, not telling you anymore about right? that. Right? Like, he totally holds it over Roland. Yeah. And that, yep. that's the part where Roland totally shows his weakness, right? Because he's like, you know, he, there's a hunger in him to have more explained and that could be exploited. 
in the way that Roland is like using his desire for riddles to get what he wants out of him. But uh, it's also kind of interesting that like Jake catches Blaine off guard by mentioning that the end of their run is Topeka. Right. I mean, I feel like something that Blaine is, he's serially in this section underestimating all of them, but in particular um, Jake, who kind of has way more insight into Charlie, a.k.a. Blaine, than he has any idea. Well, the other thing Blaine I want to... knows that he wrote the wrote the story about him, too, you know? Blaine is a pain. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I know, he keeps saying that, too. He's like, because he's a pain. You got... Maybe mm-hmm. you're not hearing me. He's a pain. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you what you think it was before we leave the city is there's a very brief moment when they're getting ready to exit the city and they describe how there's like fire around where the track, not fire, but uh, burnt marks around where the tracks were. And then just hundreds or thousands upon thousands of dead skeletons, like skeletons along the wall. And I wanted to know what you thought that I was trying to figure out was were the bodies something from the rituals? Was it something that happened with the scorch marks? Is it like what happened there? Do you think? They kind of allude to it. So uh, Stephen King basically starts to talk about the war a little bit. And Eddie had originally sort of assumed it was like a nuclear war. Right. But uh, when when they get to the edge of the city, he sees those giant, uh, almost blood-like river veins that are Uh pulsating at the bottom of these craters. And in these uh, crazy unworld, otherworldly creatures that are wandering around there. Mm-hmm. And Blaine kind of casually mentions that actually the war's not even over yet. And right. so. So you think it happened whenever that cataclysmic thing first occurred, like all those people were killed? Yeah, it was okay. So you have an alien world now with like crazy creatures and like pulsating earth and so on all gathered down at the bottom right so and you had a society that had gotten pretty far along well my apposite would be that during the course of this war the scorched earth became we will make creatures that adapt to that scorched earth to continue their attack and in the meantime that scorched earth attack it killed you know most of the population of the city and then their soldiers which are now these like otherworldly creatures still continue to wage war against each other long past their original master's demise and so that's kind of how i felt it it was playing yeah, out but that makes sense am i incorrect i mean no what i do think, you think you're i think you're right i felt like there was a lot of clues there but i was having trouble pulling it together and i think i think that sounds right it just felt like yeah like he dropped a lot of hints like there's all these bodies and then there's these scorch marks and i'm like okay these are probably linked but there's so much going on in the city i just wasn't sure so that that actually helps me thank you that, that's how i uh kind of envisioned it but uh, also you know me i kind of build up my own world all the time so. <laughs> remix yeah so i you know uh, i'm well open to any other interpretations of that that's just how it felt like to me mm-hmm. and, and then we have some other glimpses of these creatures on the other side and the creatures Ooh, yes. closer to the city are described differently than the creatures that we see in the mountains mm-hmm. and so to me that almost represented two different types of competing uh uh oh, wildlife interesting okay but i, I mean again like Blaine shows him this and then is like, hey, uh, once you've seen enough, let me know and we'll go into the super. There's also kind of a cute bit and we kind of left this out, but um, uh, always like 
uh, on oh, the floor. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then yeah, the floor yeah. goes invisible, and, like, he has kind of a panic attack and jumps into Jake's shirt, and then, like, Jake sets him down on the ground, and then it goes it goes uh, transparent again, and he's trying to sit on his shoes That's to, like, so cute. save <laughs> off uh, falling out. And, and so, uh, you know, that's just kind of a It's just a sweet one. moment where, like, I mean, obviously we know how much that Oi and Jake love each other, but it was, like, just this sweet, I don't know, like a sweet little moment between the two of you them and how the, they see their roles. So one of the things that we learn when they enter the wasteland that I think is really interesting and some world-building stuff is that we find out that the beam is what's actually holding the train up. And I think, I believe this is the first time that we're learning that the beams are not just some sort of like metaphysical structure, but something that either been created or harnessed by the great old ones. And I feel like this definitely changes the meaning of all things serve the beam. Well, hold on though. So um, in another statement, Blaine says that the computer's cameras uh, make the track disappear that they're actually riding on right and that they just follow the course of the beam that they're not riding on the beam itself no but it's that... holding them up so they're like there's a track and then they're kind of floating above the track oh okay okay so the track still exists but the beam travels along the track yeah which by the okay. way i love that like how technologically advanced this these screens are at the time you know when stephen king cooked this up it was like magic but now it's just like yeah that that like <laughs> Computer being like able to like render stuff like in real time yeah. is in like you go to you go to like Universal Studios and like you could do that you know so it's just kind of funny. Um, the other thing is, is you know me I love me some Lovecraft so I was very very into the description of the wasteland. I, I think there's been a lot of build up to the wasteland and it could easily be disappointing, but I actually really love the description when we get into it because there are so many Lovecraft Easter eggs. So, first of all, when they get there's a part where Blaine shows them sort of the the map to where they're going. Right there's like the track map, and you can see in the book all of the locations along the map. And one of them is a place called Rillie, which is spelled R I L E A on the map. But it's likely a reference to Rillie spelled differently, which is where the great old one Cthulhu slumbers in the Call of Cthulhu. So many oh, kids. really? Yes. So that's a fun reference. Also, the wasteland has a lot in common with, in particular, with the description of the trees, the nightmare trees that are reaching up from the ground with the blasted heath from color out of space. And at some point, he talks about these pipes coming out of the ground and, and that there's like an eldritch blue light coming from inside the pipes. Is that Tommy knockers? <laughs> it could have been, right? <laughs> um, so eldritch is not a word that Lovecraft invented by any stretch but it is a word that is very synonymous with him because he used it a lot to describe things so i think like these are all subtle and not so subtle references to lovecraft but it's not just lovecraft that gets a lot of love when he's describing this area right like the, there's other major influences that he's cited in the, to this book and they they do get like hat tips in the section like we get the name obviously the wasteland comes from elliot and then there's also a tolkien reference with susanna recognizing the the um ground looking like the cracks of doom so these are all just sort of uh like i said hat tips to his big influences for the saga the, I do have one question. There's a part at the end of the section where Susanna is looking at the ground and everybody else is kind of just horrified, but there's a part of her that 
is sort of fascinated by it. Drinking it in, I believe, yeah. is the, the term that was used. And I, I spent some time thinking about it, and I don't know that I've come to a resolution about what I think he's trying to say about her and Odette and Detta or, and I kind of wanted to get your take on this. What well, Detta's the darkness inside of Susanna, who right. is otherwise like a prim and proper person and nothing feeds darkness more than disaster right. or a lack of humanity, I suppose would be the other analog. And you look down and I mean, Stephen King's description of the bat-like creatures that are are nestling around these tubes that are coming out of the ground to warm themselves, and then the birds above them are mm-hmm. nestling above those guys to gather warmth from the ones below. It, it, it's pretty uh, pretty evil looking place, and like someone who can basically kill somebody without any remorse or anything and do it by instinct does have to have a small amount of. Uh, evil inside of them right yeah and that's basically what uh detta provides for Susanna is like that core competence of like human life is is uh decided by a quick reaction to what's going on Mm -hmm. yeah that could be I don't know maybe maybe I'm wrong on that one well I I was thinking about the story that I heard about Someone who, like, their first day working, they were, there's someone who worked in mental health, and their first day working was uh, in at this new job where they were, like, working specifically with people who were currently, like, um, receiving treatment for schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Uh, their first day was 9-11. Ooh. And so the entire staff was freaking out, right? Because, you know, obviously it's a, a pretty monumental event in american history but all the patients were totally calm because their They're reality like, in my world exactly like the rest of their your reality now matches my reality um and so they were just like yeah welcome to the party and i wonder if there's some degree of Susanna that like or uh Detta like you said she's the darkness right so when she sees these things there's a little bit of the rest of her whether it's Odetta or Susanna or whatever, kind of drinking, like their sort of realities are matching in a particular way. Yeah, that that's a good good way to describe it. Okay. Um, I just I, I, I just know. thought it was really interesting, and he like spent some time kind of like exploring this, and it wasn't fully clicking for me, so I just wanted to like pause and talk about it. Well, the that's as good a description as anything. I, I was actually going to go with the hypochondriacs and now the coronavirus. <laughs> hey, I'm one of those people who was like, I told you to wash your hands. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the wildlife because, I, again, I love the description here in the wasteland. It is so unsettling. It is so horrifying. It is so alien. It's all the things I wanted. Um, And it's this blending, again, of, like, Lovecraftian monsters that are, like, indescribable in their horror. But there's also, like, a lot of allusions here to, to me, to the art of Hieronymus Bosch. Um, Are you familiar with that artist? I'm sure you've seen his stuff. Uh, I don't... You gotta send me a picture. Okay, so his most famous piece of art is probably The Garden of Earthly Delight. Is that the one where uh, the guy is eating the baby by, like, sucking him into his, like, grotesque mouth? Yes, most likely, because there's so much happening in this. Hold on, let me Oh, no, this one is, maybe I'm thinking of Goya. 
Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You are thinking of Goya, but in keeping with Goya. But see, this one—the reason I say that over Goya is specifically there's a description of this wildlife. Oh yeah, I've touched this one. Oh, you okay? Did you Google it? No, I mean like I've physically touched it. You're not supposed to, but bad um... DJ. I am well, completely obsessed with his art. It's so disturbing. But specifically, the reason I thought of it was because he uses the words like that they're like cavorting, prancing and leaping, which to me kind of blends this like monstrous surrealism with yeah. a kind of what's the word jovial is what Yeah, like they're like it's like jovial and delighting in the horror in a particular way that uh painted a very clear picture of what's happening on the ground here, which I is I saw horrifying. this in Spain when I was yeah. 14 and in the 90s um they didn't rope off paintings and like it was pretty like lackluster security and like you could do whatever you wanted and i was 14 so i didn't know any better so i just like was wandering up and like looking at it and like i I touched a couple of things and like someone finally saw me and they're like don't do that (laughs) you're probably why they had to put up the velvet ropes okay (laughs) like luckily i didn't like pick anything off but wow (laughs) You're able to like basically get right up to the painting and move them around. Oh. And that same museum in Madrid, I believe, was yeah. the one that's famous for having uh, multiple famous paintings stolen from it. Oh. And this uh, Topeka stuff uh, about that time, um, Eddie is kind of concerned about the status of the tracks. And this is what I was yeah. trying to underline a little bit earlier. Um, he kind of has this little dialogue with Blaine, like, "If you're so technologically advanced, can't you check the the state of the tracks ahead of us?" After mm-hmm. I think Blaine had explained like it's seven hundred wheels or um eight eight hundred miles or something like that. Um or seven thousand wheels yeah. and eight hundred miles. Something like some, that. Uh, something like that. And and so um uh he's like he's he's kinda like coy about it for a second and then he's like, Well, you know, um we could have checked those if I hadn't uh, you know, taken care of that particular portion of my uh abilities before we left the city. And he's like, why would you do that? You know, and then Jake kind of rolls into this like explanation mm-hmm. of the fact that uh, uh, Blaine is actually suicidal. And like the meantime, there's like kind of this uh, play off of the baby Blaine or little Blaine as Blaine sort of fluctuates from manic and angry to regular. He kind of almost takes on some of baby Blaine's uh, vocal patterns and shifts into that. And uh, basically, uh, Jake goes on a little diatribe that Blaine's a pain, says, and he says it over and over again, but the, the, he explains that basically Blaine's suicidal and he plans to take these guys with him. And, you know, whether they die on the tracks with uh, nothing there, you know, because the tracks are gone, or they make it to the end destination and die, mm-hmm. it's, it's the same result for Blaine. He just wants, you know, some riddles for the end of the journey. We also get this kind of um, interesting description of what happened to Patricia, which, if you guys remember, was the yeah. other train that used to be uh, Blaine's uh, cohort. Um, apparently, uh, she had some circuit malfunctions that had basically caused her to go mad. And even though it was a minor malfunction, and Blaine even says like um, the the type of electronics they're made out of, and I can't remember w- what terminology he used. Rachel, if you, if you remember, you can. Um, I mean, in. I think that he just it talked was like about positri- 
Positron, uh, something. Hmm. You know, I know he's talking about like science. inhibitors, basically. Yeah, and so uh, basically, uh, they're not supposed to actually get corrupted or go bad, right? But uh, that small fire caused problems and systematic failures in her system, and he kind of like held her in check for a while, and then finally one day just flipped the switch that allowed her to have free reign over uh, what the train does, and she immediately flew into the river and yeah. ended it. I thought it was interesting when we talk about what happened with Patricia, um, because he talks about how she has a technical problem that she should not be having, which to me was very reminiscent. It takes us this, this conversation takes us all the way to the very beginning of the book uh, because it's reminiscent to what happened to Shardik, right? Like she has a mechanical issue. She's not supposed to have just like Shardik is susceptible to parasites. Like he shouldn't have had. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that's telling us something about the technology, right? Like what is happening? Is it just a passage of time? Is it something that's happening because of the breakdown of the the tower? Is it like, what is the cause, whatever the cause is, we have like reached the expiration date for all of this technology. I mean, there was the mention of Shardik's battery yeah, in his positronic brain or whatever. And like Roland does call back to Susanna in the forest as though Stephen King is making sure to underline a few times that the tech is there and the tech is here. And yeah, pretty much that's it. Um, As far as Blaine going crazy goes, uh, some of it is equipment failure, but do you think some of it is just the lack of interaction? Yeah. I mean, if he's shutting himself down for so long and then to me, the hunger for riddles almost underlines a need for something new and different, some yeah. sort of experience. Like he's just so bored. Yeah, and the way I interpreted this, and I'm glad we, we got that uh, other message in, but the way I interpreted it is almost that the sheer lack of no interaction with anything of interest to him is driving him mad. Like, uh, it's almost the um, Marvin from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Where, right. You know, he's like, yeah. I have the biggest brain ever, but I'm using it for nothing but to go get this person from here and move him to there. You know, right. Like, and like that, that disdain for that sort of thing is self-evident when he is upset about being nothing but a, you know, a transport object or, you know, a thingamajig that a piece of tech you know that's he's very offended by that and probably when he was interacting with folks all the time like those circuits are being used but when they lay dormant maybe that's the point is the laying dormant mm-hmm. uh same thing with uh Shardik, you know like when Shardik started to go sideways was almost like a hibernation of his more me- mechanical mechanisms and mm-hmm. like a re issuing of his like deeper animalistic nature or whatever yeah, you call that in Dwayne's I mean, all of this is making me lean towards it's not just him adhering to coding like he is pretty self-aware yeah i think so yeah. i i i i'm like 99 percent sure blades uh alive to the extent that uh that ai can be massive yeah. city ai brain can be yeah because he's not it if if he was still following code, there would be some sort of underlying adherence to something. And he's managed to you know go the spectrum, even to where like he was contemplating suicide. You know, right. an AI doesn't contemplate suicide. It, 
and he doesn't allow like his fellow AI to end it all. Um, you know, that's, those aren't choices that a algorithm makes. Those are choices that a conscious thing makes. And, and blade also like for being a machine that's way out away from, uh, where the gunslingers have been uh, traveling previously had managed to like, pick up rumors that uh uh roland was out there and mm. it decided basically to hold off in the off chance that he would be able to meet somebody interesting we also find out that blaine kind of has a bad sense of memory or possibly like uh some sort of um i don't know he's uh, not able to keep track of time yeah there you go that's probably so like he thinks that the um the plane crash that they saw outside of the the town was like fairly recently, and that Patricia has only been gone a month or so, and, and this time frame doesn't really line up with what's really going on. So right. we find out that when Blaine was running the God Drums uh, for the town, uh, he he really was just kind of doing that in his sleep, like while he was in idle mode. And, and the other interesting thing that we get out of this little bit is that Blaine kind of explains how he got to where he is. So. He starts off as um, a servant of the city, and then when all the people are gone, there are very few people that want to venture outside of the city, and then he serves them. And then he um, – uh, the bigger guy um, – heck, what's what's the name of the guy that flew the plane now? I've, I've forgotten. Um, David Quick. David Quick. David Quick comes to town, so he has a little of excitement there. And then, like, David Quick leaves, and pretty soon the people in town start to fear him. And then after a while, that fear turns into, like, a god myth, and Blaine, as a public servant, <laughs> takes on the the piece of, of being god over these folks and toys with the people and probably uh, proliferates the... Uh, the whole like the machine will come up and murder you mm-hmm. business until he gets tired of that too. Yeah. And it's, it's so it's a, it's a really dark thing. And the question I have for you, Rachel, and the reason I'm going through all these steps is, um, is Blaine under his own control or is he just, um, manageable AI of, of many, um, algorithms? Because, it feels like he's making choices, but he's hanging it on the fact that he was serving the people. Mm-hmm. But if he's serving the people, then when they would ask for something like, I don't know, a ride to somewhere, would you be able to present a challenge if you weren't 100% self-aware? Yeah, I, that's the question, right? Because he asks Roland, like, or he tells Roland, like, there's something wrong with him, but it's not any he's done like system checks it's not that that it's like a spiritual malaise which leads me to believe like that he is pretty self-aware okay and i thought he was self-aware to begin with but um mm-hmm. i was reading i mean i think the... he's self-aware but i also think that at the end of the day there is some programming right so in the way that people can be manipulated his programming can be used to manipulate him as well okay Does um, that make sense? i just I, I, yeah, I I was just trying to grapple with this because I thought um, originally he was self-aware, but then I I think I, one of our listeners sent a comment in or, or somebody left something on the Facebook page, and I read that. And I was like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe oh, he's right. we did not self-aware comment. because their comment made a lot of sense about the um, 
the let me pull uh, that up this is a good time to pull that up oh here it is okay i found it all right so this came from charissa all right she said so i was talking with my husband about this section and he had thought and he had a thought that kind of blew my mind a bit blaine doesn't have a consciousness he is a very advanced ai so he keeps running on coding or he so he runs on coding his theory is that blaine was meant to keep the passengers busy entertained to keep the peace when he stopped being used parts of Hearts break down and his obsession with riddles is probably the last thing that was activated by a passenger. He is a super Alexa uh, that has been left on too long and some programs have corrupted. I always saw him as almost a person with his emotions, but it explains how he, how he sticks to the rules and how he just kills everything that doesn't follow them. He follows the coding, not emotions. Interesting. So then I, going back to that, I would say like, if that's the case, then right. his his service portion is obviously working as he hung his hat on that as a method for, you know, becoming God of these folks. Does the transition from machine to God alleviate him from following like the primary code? Or is that the signification of an advanced intelligence that has gone to basically self-aware? Yeah, it's like, was he programmed to beat the Turing test, but not actually passing the Turing test? Uh, hmm. Yeah, so I don't know on that one. I would really love to hear from you guys if you have um, a better view on that, because I'm kind of confused as well. Not sure I uh, know what's going on 100%. Um, The other thing I know in this little section is that uh, Jake... Um, asks him about his communication and, and talking to him. And, and Eddie's kind of yelling at him like he's far away. Um, turns out that we were correct. Uh, they were going through Blaine's brain earlier. It is located in the city. And the little antenna that we saw when they were coming into the uh, uh, passenger's cabin was actually a microburst antenna that is communicating still by relay back to the city with uh, Blaine's brain, and he is not actually uh, physically present inside of the vehicle itself. I'm wondering, did he kind of admit that what he's doing is not really suicide? Like, even if he crashes the train, his mind will still exist in Lud. So does that, is, did he kind of tip his hand that potentially what he's doing is not suicide, and that's why he won't give them a direct answer about it and gets very quiet about it, because what he's actually participating in is sort of like, an errand for the man in black. Like it's a murder, not a suicide. Uh, so I kind of envisioned the start of the gassing of the city as just a simple method to allow him to continue to travel. And then at some point he would end up with the destruction, complete destruction of the city, which would be the final end for Blaine. Okay. So you think he's going to blow, he's going to nuke the city afterwards anyway, after he, yeah, because, I mean, well, Blaine kind of alludes to to dying. Well, and... that's what I'm wondering. Is he being a false narrator, though? Because oh, if he maybe. makes, like, he makes the point of saying, like, this isn't just me. Like, I'm not just this train, you know. I'm I'm actually this mind back home, safely not on this track. And so I was wondering if, like, that was a slip-up. Because he has another slip-up where he mentions that he had heard a rumor that a gunslinger was in the area again. Who would he have heard that rumor from? And, like, Roland ask him about it and he clams up again and won't say anything because we well, we assume there, it to be a conversation that he had with the man in black because the man in black 
told TikTok man, like, you know, Blaine's supposed to take care of this, but he's unreliable these days. Yes. So maybe that's right then. That, that actually sounds pretty good. I remember the TikTok man and uh, the man in black mentioning uh, Blaine being unreliable, but I wasn't sure if that meant that they were in cahoots or if that meant that. Uh, Blaine had more pre- previously just been crazy and like easy to predict what he would do to people, and right. now he's less so in his like s- s- schizophrenic state. But, but do you, you feel know, like it this confirms their conversation though that he is hurt? I mean, where would he have heard about the gunslayer? Right? Like even with his little feelers everywhere. I mean, I guess. I, I was guess thinking. It... Uh, so he already knew about the old folks in that other town. Yeah. You you know, think he has sensors as as in the, that area. Yeah, so but that's I, not I a rumor that he like, would know. Well, yeah, so I was thinking that like he was maybe tied into more than just the uh, city, but uh, you, it would make more sense to go with the man in black. Um, and now you got me kind of whirling this around in my mind too. So, so if we go with Blaine's timeline for description of when he like goes to sleep, wakes up, thinks it's only been a month, goes to sleep, wakes up, whatever. Uh, when in that timeline did the rumors appear of the gunslingers in the world? Right. Was it before or after Roland's big nap after the conversation at the Golgotha? Exactly. So then if we posit that it is before Patricia and after Quick – we would have to posit that he had some sort of sensors that he could kind of track or got some sort of message. If we posit that it's after Patricia and before they arrive at the city, then it would have to be the man in black that Mm -hmm. exposed him because their trail is sort of like close to each other. And Mm -hmm. in fact, um, it's almost as though the man in black shows up to the city after Roland and the gang have gotten there. Which, which to me means that like he's almost behind them as opposed to ahead of them, uh, but but there is not, so, there's a wrinkle to that that we can't yeah, talk exactly. about. So because he says a, they're not supposed to have gotten this far, exactly. Which and so, what does that where does that put him? Does that put him ahead or behind? Both. <laughs> but the other thing is is the use of the word rumor as opposed to I knew there was a gunslinger in the world like i knew you were coming this way he's heard rumors which to me sounds like secondhand information as opposed to him picking it up through one of his like you know outposts of data okay so the blaine uh speeds up and they go hypersonic yes um which means that i believe this 800 mile journey is going to take eight hours and 45 minutes or something of that nature um uh eddie is like you got any music and uh, that's when we hear about the uh, the gog, which apparently is an instrument played on the higher levels of the tower. Mm-hmm. And and then he's you know he's like uh, you got any ZZ Top? And uh, and he says yeah, I got some ZZ Top. I got and I don't I'm not familiar with ZZ Top's catalog, so this song isn't familiar to me. But Eddie's like, oh, if that's all you got for ZZ Top, then I don't even want to hear it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like what? So uh, and it's some like. Some hog song or sausage song or something like that. The song is called Tube Snake Boogie. Tube Snake Boogie. What is Tube Snake Boogie? It's a song, apparently. Is it a real song? 
Yes, it is. It is. Oh, no. Okay, so uh, apparently uh, ZZ Top's song, The Tube Snake Boogie, is not Eddie's favorite. And he basically rejects this out of hand. And and pretty soon, like, uh, it becomes apparent that um, Blaine just wants him to tell him riddles until uh, they they die. (laughs) And and so uh, Blaine's, like, basically demanding now, tell me riddles or else I'll just... I'll kill you right now. Mm-hmm. And Roland like gets this like gunslinger, um, you know, dust and blaze of glory battle like uh, uh, sort of mentality to him, and he he kind of like uh, soldiers up to the bard is like, well, no, and and Blaine's like, what? And and like uh, he Roland's like, you've been rude, and I can tell you, you know, I would normally insult you with, um, you, you like you suck cock or something like that, but uh, you have no mouth with which to suck. And it goes on and on <laughs> with like, all these like really great Roland translating modern day um, insults, yeah. like you know, I. I would tell you that your mother is disappointed, but you have no mother and you're a bastard, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And and it's a great, like, set of just really good insults from Roland. And um, Blaine is getting angrier and angrier and also kind of confused. Right. And and doesn't understand. And, like, this is the point where Roland kind of backs Blaine into a corner. Right. And and you get kind of views from each of – of the other gunslingers, you know, Jake in his head is like, Oh no. And you hear like little Blaine, like you're going to drive him to, to do it. And then you, you know, Susanna and Eddie are both fearful at first. And then as, as Eddie, I mean, as um, Roland starts to like push him into this logical corner, uh, everybody realizes what's going on. And is like, yeah, do it. Turn him around. You know, you got this. And, and Roland basically drives it to the point where he's like, no, this is all rude, and you don't understand. And Blaine's confused. He's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you basically you're offering us the opportunity to give you riddles until uh, we die, and that isn't logical. Uh, I'm telling you no that we won't give you riddles this moment. You can't demand it of me. However, and then Roland like drops back and uses an explanation from uh, Gillian about – how they had like a riddling day mm-hmm. uh, once a year and how court basically always took home the grand prize, which apparently was the largest goose in Gilead. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know much about geese, so I'm guessing that's large, <laughs> uh, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but he describes this competition as basically like a way for the riddlers to supply riddles to the council. The councils look over the riddles and then determine if the riddles are fair because uh, there's got to be a way to answer a riddle. And that if they could answer all of the riddles, that they would win. And then there's a caveat for that particular game where if a person doesn't answer the riddle, the person behind them gets to an- a chance at answering that riddle as well, which is kind of an extra bonus because they have a little bit longer yeah. to think about the answer to the riddle. Mm-hmm. A- and... He explains this, and uh, you know, you can almost see the greed and hunger in Blaine rolling up as he's like, "Tell me more of this game they played," you know. And and Roland basically uses that to propose uh, a game between mm-hmm. the two of them, and the game is that they will tell him riddles because he already knows a bunch, and 
They don't want to have to try and answer weird convoluted riddles from him. Uh, and if he can answer them all, then they will end up with their fate of being destroyed. But if he can't answer them all, uh, then um, then basically they will be able to go on their journey without Blaine killing them. And so basically they uh, find out that they're going to have this riddle duel. And then Stephen King's like, oh, you're really interested in edge of your seats, huh? Well, um, bye-bye. <laughs> no more for you. And that's the conclusion. Uh, uh, brutal. And, and I mean, I kind of uh, zoomed through no, that no, too. Is there great. anything you wanted to, to touch base on on that one? Um, I mean, I think it's it, it. What's interesting about this part here is that Roland kind of has a moment where he's like, "Okay, here we go. This is another showdown," which is something he's very familiar with. <laughs> Pun intended. It's in his wheelhouse. <laughs> Uh, wow, wow, wow. we get another wheel motif with him where he talks about like he's been in the situation over and over again this is just the role of a gunslinger you were gonna have these showdowns and even though he's not pulling out a gun he does go into battle mode like and he just like roasts blaine and rather than using bullets or guns this time his weapons are words and just as he is with with a gun, his word, his aim is true, and they are just as effective as a bullet. You know, like, Blaine is shocked. He is affronted. You know, eventually he is cowed and petulant and unsure. Roland definitely gets the upper hand because he has shown up to a gunfight with a bullet train. You know what I mean? Like, he <laughs> he's not ready to take on, like, a truly courageous and intelligent and human. Like, maybe maybe this is what it was like when he would talk to Andrew Quick. Unclear. Or, not Andrew Quick. David Quick. Like, unclear. But the point is, he I don't think he is accustomed to being spoken to in the way that he was. And it kind of, like, knocks him back into, like, a more subservient role. And, you know, I love this moment when, during the rant where Roland kind of puts a little twist on the usual, like, gunslinger slang where he's like, you've forgotten the faces of those who made you. Yep. Which is both in keeping with a Rolandism and yet at the same time is the not so subtle burn, right? Like it's not even your father. It's something that made you that again, reinforced right from the very first section of this chapter is like, he's not a person. He is a machine. And that's something that I don't think that Blaine likes to be reminded of uh, because he gets so offended every time it comes and it's Roland twisting the knife and like asserting his dominance. So I, I loved this scene. It was really nice to kind of get a chance to see like Roland in full gunslinger form, right? And <laughs> you can see it happening with those around him as well. Like he almost glows when he takes this role and you can kind of get a little bit of a taste of what a like the essence of a gunslinger and like why it is that when he entered the river crossing town, like everybody was like, oh, well, gunslinger and like treating him with self-reverence because there is almost kind of like a spiritual leader to him. Um, he just like exudes the strength and like the way that people respond to that in his group is to just look on at him with like this great admiration. So there's a karate movie where um, the guy like his hands glow when he finally, you know, finds the self strength to like beat the other guy. And I, when you said glow, that was the first thing I was thinking of is like, does Roland just like shine like a, a glowing hero when he does this? I feel like in the same way that he described when he was like holding Susanna and she changed, like her body almost like took on more weight and felt more vital. Mm -hmm. I feel like probably there's something about him that he plays possum a little bit and plays quiet and plays the observer. But when he steps into this gunslinger role, like all of his vitality, all of his strength and just like his presence just exudes. 
I think that's part of why we love Roland, but also, you know, I don't know. It's just crazy. It's part of the gunslinger vibe, I guess. It's part of like the spiritual aspect almost to the gunslinger. There's also another cool part where Blaine basically like names each one of them as the quartet and then like explains that he is a quartet himself. Yes. It's almost ceremonial in the way he goes through each of them. Like, it's sort of like locking in the agreement, but then you're right. There is, again, he slips these little pieces of information in that he considers himself a cotet. What was your interpretation of that? So my interpretation was um, early on, we learned that Blaine had shed some of his sub personalities and mm-hmm. uh, I guess sort of killed them in a way. And But maybe he's aware that there's more of, there's more to him than... Exactly. Like you have baby Blaine, which we know is like kind of floating around in there. And we have regular Blaine. Are there other aspects of Blaine that are separate personalities? Like the servicing bot that like uh, addressed him when they came in and so on that allows him to almost be his own quartet as well? Because inherently to be a quartet, you have to have more than one individual, right? Mm hmm. So that that means Blaine's acknowledging that in his crazy, broken personality, he's like the dude from Split. Right. As much as baby Blaine is going like, he doesn't know I'm here, maybe he is a little bit more aware of that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-mm-mm. And that that's how I took it. it and it, I mean, it's very poignant. And like Stephen King goes out of his way to have him do that. And and so it, it feels to me like that's where he's, he's heading home towards. Yeah. Ugh, so good. All right. So... I always ask you, what do you think of this section at the end of these conversations? What I, but we're at the end of the book. What did you think about this book? This section and the book. Uh, this section is good. It's well-paced. Um, a lot happens, but not a lot happens at the same time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I end up getting extra confused in those sections. Um, overall, I thought it's a little more action-packed than some of the stuff we've been dealing with earlier on uh, especially cool to see Lud as a whole and then to finally get a glimpse of the wastelands of course we've both been like on pins and needles to get some blaine action going and now mm-hmm. we're getting it mm-hmm. and then you know you get the the uh tiktok man and the man in black twist that's kind of a really cool like and the game's back on again where in previous books we've kind of been like floating on a ambiguous target Mm -hmm. now we have someone to like hang our suspicions on again yeah Yeah. and and that's really good i like that part yes definitely what about you uh i remember this book being my favorite and uh, i mean it's it's, not your favorite no 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 no. i'm trying (laughs) no no no. the thing is is like in retrospect i love the gunslinger so much more i'm kind of like trying to decide i think this one is still my favorite so far um but it is neck and neck because i don't think i appreciated the gunslinger to the degree that i do now having gone through it and really like studied it a little bit like i i feel much more connected to that one but this one i feel like is where stephen king has figured things out you know what I mean? Like the gunslinger was sort of like an experiment. The um, the drawing of three was him playing around and exploring and like mashing up genres. And then this one, he's like, he, there's a momentum to this book that the other two that felt a little more wandery didn't have. And I think this book also is just like full of truly epic moments. So yeah, I, I love this book. Um, I, I this one definitely stands out for me, and I loved this section as well. I think 
these last few these ever since they got to Lud, the villains in this book are so strong. Like Gasher, they're all different, but they're so strong. Gasher, TikTok Man, and now Blaine are like iconic villains all on their own, and we got them all in like the last third of this book, which is wild. And of course, the Man in Black, you know, forever the most iconic. Um, so yeah, no, I loved this book. This was a really fun read. There were parts that le- that dragged a little bit in mm-hmm. um in the second book. That this one, I mean, there were a couple moments early that maybe had some of that, but for the most part, this book felt like it was moving. We had that great opening scene with Shardik, and then uh, from then on, if it wasn't action, it was really fascinating world building and really fascinating character development because, again, like the the genres that this is playing, I think Steve, or Stephen King has like dialed into who he wants Roland to be. Well, I think you're on the same page as me where um, when we didn't have a a like name of someone we're after or someone who's the the bad guy. Yeah, you're kind of like floating around and and the tower is like a goal, but it's it's very ambiguous. You have trouble like deciding who who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. But in this book, we get we get the rails put back on the proverbial cart and it's like. Okay, here's the bad guys. They're forming their thing. Here's the good guys that we already know are the good guys. We're defining the good guys a little bit more um, into each of their roles, and they're becoming of age. Yeah. And then we also have these guys now that we can be like, what are they up to? Mm-hmm. And we didn't have the what are they up to before right. that left like some of yeah. the earlier books. You're like, well, what's the, what is the point? Like the drawing, fine, that's good. Like you know, you need to get the characters in and, and it like, has their interesting its stories, own and they have their charm. own mini. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those have their like own like uh mini bosses that make it like their own protra- protagonist but in some of the other sections you don't really have someone that they're fighting against and now we have like a battle again mm-hmm. and i think that's what makes this book better than some of the other ones yeah is that you're like oh now and even the first book like you had the you know the man in black that he's chasing yeah and so you have like an end goal to get to this guy and then you didn't have that for a while. And I think bringing that back makes this a, one of the better books. Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. I also, I mean, like, I, I do have love for the drawing of three because I almost feel like it's this weird fever dream that it introduces Eddie, who I love forever and ever. But, but yeah, there's, some, and then, I don't know, there's just something about it that feels, it, it feels like a, a chapter instead of a book. And this feels yes. like a, journey like there's a full arch of things that are happening so yeah i love this book i had a lot of fun going through this with you i'm super excited (laughs) to get to wizard and glass i'm super excited to love it since i've talked about this before in the past that was always the one i was salty about you you find it's uh it's not as good as you remember oh my god what if it's well i don't remember loving it so what if it's worse (laughs) i'm hoping that i'm like i'm i'm ready to love it so i'm i'm nervous about susan delgado I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens when we get there. Um, oh, um, one thing we forgot to mention, is there any uh, significance to her wheelchair being left behind? Oh my god, we didn't even talk about that. I don't know. I wonder if it's sort of like the last piece of Susanna that was New York. Like, in the same way that um, Jake lost his watch, and mm-hmm. it was like symbolic of his past life, I wonder if the losing of the wheelchair is like the last piece of her old life. Because she doesn't really need it, 
she's like very capable of getting around and they can carry you know what i mean like they don't actually require it but it definitely was something that was symbolic of her life before when she was odetta Okay, because I, I was I was trying to think of like why that was important because they specifically underline it. Yeah, you know, Stephen King's like, hey, and the wheelchair's gone. Like, I mean, Whoa. that would suck because you can't go back for it. <laughs> Not yeah. if there's like chemical weapons about to go off. Like you're pretty much like, oh well, bye bye. But I don't know. <laughs> I mean, at some point she's got to get another chair, right? I guess we'll find out. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Okay, so for those of you playing along at home, let's see. Let me pull up my actual notes. Different notes. Uh, the next episode, we are going to start Wizard and Glass. We're going to cover the prologue. It's going to be Prologue Blaine and Part One Riddles, Chapter One Beneath the Demon Moon. So this one doesn't seem to have like all the little sections and all that jazz. I don't know. We'll get into the structure of it when we get there. But for now, it's just the prologue and the first chapter. Okay, cool. So uh, I don't have any direct Stephen King connections. I might have missed something. If I did, let me know. There's no, there's no film adaptation news. But that is <laughs> not going to stop us from dreaming. Cause it's, so that leads us into our listener feedback. We did get one new email. Okay, so this one comes from Christina. She says, hi guys, just wanted to pass on some positive feedback for the Cast of Paw podcast. I just finished episode 35 and I've really been digging the in-depth conversations and banter that you guys have, as well as many insights I hadn't come to you on my own during the last dive down the Dark Tower rabbit hole. Man, that is accurate. It is kind of like going down a rabbit hole. Uh, I've been trying to decide if I wanted to reread the books, and, uh, but tagging along on your journey instead has been a lot of fun. Keep up the good work. From Nina. P.S. And this is the most important part of this email. Team Oi all the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was nice. Thank you, Christina. We love hearing from you guys. Thanks for listening. That's very nice of you. I'm also a Team team Oi, although <laughs> my imagination of Oi was completely wrong oh. until... <laughs> Oh my god! Never forget. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'm actually a little embarrassed about. That no, one, I so. love it. Are you, I tease you, but I actually, I that like was so delightful to me. It's such a DJism. Like I have like a like this like running list of funny shit that you've said over the years that I've known you, and that like <laughs> is on the list. Wrong, wrong details. I always pick up on the wrong details. <laughs> Okay, so for those of you on the Facebook group and those of you who should join the Facebook group, every episode, not every, but I try every episode to put a question out to the audience because I want to know what you're thinking about stuff. Sometimes there are questions about things I don't understand in the book that I want clarification on. Sometimes they're just sort of fun questions. And this one's definitely more in line with the fun questions. Since we're at the end of the book and because we're always putting out into the universe, okay, that we're going to someday get an adaptation of these books, a good one. I thought I would ask uh, the listeners, and you and I can also talk about what we picked, in a book that has featured so many iconic moments from the series, if there was ever going to be an adaptation what scene or moment from the book would you most want to see recreated on the screen and why? And we got a few comments. Do you want to talk about yours, ours first, and then uh, the listeners? Uh, sure. So I, I hopefully I'm not uh, stealing one from someone else, but I actually, you know, through this whole book, there's a lot of really cool stuff. And at first, the first uh, instinct is to be like, well, I want to see Shardik. But uh, there's also like, the cool uh, crossing the broken bridge to the city of Lud and like the all of city of Lud there. 
and while I would love to see Shardik, that's just one character. Whereas if I could see them entering the city, that whole section with like Patricia crashed into the river and like the bridge all yeah. busted up and Gasher like taunting them from the other side and like the rising city that's in squalor and like has mm-hmm. traps hanging from the air. I don't know. I, a uh, part of me really would like to see that. And or if we could maybe also squeeze in some like the first introduction of the pubes and that like epic scene where yeah. she's like, blows them up and yeah. then and you're like ooh uh, and so those are probably my my two picks and I I'm kind kind of cheating by combining them that's okay. um but th- that's kind of what I would really if I had to like narrow it down that's definitely what I'd want to see yeah man it is tough because there are a handful of really great moments. I think I want to see the house. Dutch Ooh. Hill. That's what I want to see. Now, I know we got to. There you go. That's a good one. I want to see it well done because it was wiggity whack. You don't want to see it done like it was done in the movie. No, that was some <laughs> bullshit. I want to see a really good version of that monster coming out of the walls. And I want it to be like, did you see the first It movie? Uh, no, I haven't watched either. It. Okay. Well, the, the second one's not that good. You could, <laughs> you could pretty much skip the second one. It doesn't matter. The first movie is pretty complete. And I would definitely recommend watching the first movie because it is really good. But there's a part where they go into, and this is something we talked about when we were talking about connections to the Stephen King universe, that there's a connection between uh, its house slash lair and Dutch Hill. But when they go into the house, it is so sinister and terrifying. And the mood is so oppressive and like full of dread before shit even starts getting wacky. And it gets wacky and it's really scary. And I would love to see somebody like maybe Andy Muschietti do this movie and give us that moment in the house. Like even before the walls come alive, just that, the eerie sinister presence that, uh, that the house sort of exudes. That's what I want. And then of course a really cool monster. So yeah, that's what I would pick. <laughs> okay. So Tim weighed in and he said he wants the adventure of Roland and Oi and Ludd. That's a great answer. Any scene involving mm-hmm. Oi, really? <laughs> Why? Because Oi! I'd love to see a well-realized creature with a ton of unnecessary CGI and uncanny valley nonsense. Make him practical as possible and treat him with the respect he deserves. Not simply a <laughs> cute mascot. Yeah, I could not agree more. Like, that's one of the many things wrong with the movie is no Billy Bumblers. Yeah, and the Uncanny Valley, like, what they did to Sonic the Hedgehog was super weird. Round one or round two? Well, even round two was still, like, a little, like, uh... That round one, though, was... It was real bad. Nightmare fuel, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Teresa says, our friend Teresa, who's, like, blown our mind uh, on the AI talk, uh, I want to see the battle with Shardik. In my head, it was so epic. And I agree with Tim on seeing Oi and, and all his glory. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, let's face it. We love the Shardik scene. And even though we, like, breeze through it so fast in the book, I feel like uh, if it's really well done, it could kind of be, like, a slow build. It could be kind of like... um the T-Rex and Jurassic Park moment a little bit. Well, so imagine for a moment, if you will, like instead of a movie about the Dark Tower series, if we just had a movie about the Guardians. Oh. Because there's so much that is unexplained about the Guardians, even when you finish the entire series. And yet also like such interesting and epic characters in the book that are painted like, 
with a quick brush and then you move on. Mm -hmm. And yet we all, like every one of us, remembers Shardick. I mean, you can actually go buy a Stephen King shirt that just has Shardick on it. (laughs) Like that's how important of a character it is to everybody. And yet when you actually go through that section, you're like, oh, I got like, you know, 30 seconds of this. And then we moved on to something else. Well, I think that would be a either a comic book or a movie adaptation. Mm-hmm. And then that way, if they got to dink around with like some of the plot of the dark tower series, you're a lot more flexible because there's not a ton of background explained on those right. characters. Expanded and they have a lot universe. of expanded. Exactly. Universe. And there's so much leeway and there's, I mean like cybernetic. Yes. Bears. Yes. Always. Yes. To cybernetic bears. <laughs> Well, unless, uh, you know, it could go the way of that um, one Godzilla movie where they, like, make Cyber Godzilla and he has, like, a robotic heart and it gets real bad. <laughs> oh, my God. I just had a brainstorm. I feel like for your next laser project, you should totally make, like, a Shardick on the tree kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, if you have any ideas, um, I still have – I have canvas and uh, paint showing up uh, this next week, Ooh. and I will start doing some pretty epic art. Um, so if you – and uh, my wife actually requested some custom hairpins. I saw. They're so cool. Yeah, I designed from start to finish in like a couple hours. So if you have anything that you are you think is cool or want to try out, let me know. Okay. And, and I mean, we can make a, you know, like a, a Roland hairpin if you want. Right? Or you could have like the, well, I mean, because the, there's the, um, the Arthur Eld sign, which is like a leaf kind of thing, like a curved leaf. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, if you can... If you can find a a picture of it and send it my way, that I would can be cool. Definitely incorporate it into. I feel whatever. like there's a whole dark tower of uh, part of your like a whole section. Like what is the name of it? Like Spanky Monkey, M- Muffin Spank, Muffin Spank, a whole section in Muffin Spank, just dark tower art. Okay, so let's see. Craig weighed in. He said the picture is the answer. So he agrees with me that it's the Dutch Hill monster. I would love nice. to see the scene where they pull Jake through the door. We kind of already have seen it, but seeing a version with the whole team effort would be great. That is, can you remember how shitty that scene was? The monster yes. starts to come alive and then he just like goes through a door by himself and then he gets to the other side and he just like doesn't have a shoe and he like Roland's not even there. Oh, yeah, it's like an eye roll almost. Oh, it's it's that bad. Like you, you barely paid lip service to what would otherwise be like an epic house coming alive trying to eat you. Yeah, I think there was more in the leaked trailer than there was in the movie. I, I feel like Monster House did it better, than right? It. <laughs> okay, and finally, Chris said anything in Lud would be a visual treat. I would especially enjoy seeing Eddie and Su- Susie walking down the boulevard with the cinnamon flavored corpses. I would also love to see the visual of Blaine emerging out of the wall around Lud, high above uh, the start of the wastelands. Ah, we need a movie. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many cool. I mean, like there's got to be some director out there that is just dying to make these things, right? Well, if you're lucky, in ten more years or eight more years, they'll another run out of things of the wheel. to make again, and then we'll we will get another crack at it. Yeah. Um. It, it, right now, you know, even popular productions are being pushed back. So yeah. you know, those will have to happen before we ever get a new. <sighs> Did you see that the breakdown of the pilot episode? Somebody got a copy of it and like wrote out what it was and like had screenshots. Oh, really? No, I put it, it in. I put it, it on the good? Facebook. Yes, and they said oh. it was good. Like it wasn't oh, like sad. the the thing was is like it, they think their theory is the reason it didn't get picked up is they took so long 
that a lot of the actors had like moved on to other projects and had been released from contracts and like getting everybody back in contract was just like too daunting and they were worried it would like conflict with the um marketing around the Lord of the Rings series but the oh. but the pilot was not bad the pilot was good and pilots oh, are usually the weakest part so if the pilot was good the show is probably going to be really good Ah, curse you. <laughs> that is really irritating. Yeah, right? And I was saying how I really wish that they Amazon was still doing what it used to. Like, remember how they used to roll out a bunch of pilots and then people would, like, rate the pilots and then they would make the show based on which ones had the most buzz? Yeah, like Alpha House and uh, that. The Tick. The, yeah, The Tick was really good. The clone of um of Big Bang Theory that they had for a little bit. Yes, and... exactly. Betas or something like that. Yep, yep, yeah. yep. Yeah, I wish they had done that with that because you know it probably would have been really popular if it was good and it has already has, like, a, a fan base that, like, wants it to happen. Like, it would have probably gotten picked up. So annoying. Anyway, I don't know though. Amazon canceled the tick, so I know. Don't say it. It makes me so sad. It was so good. All right. <laughs> so, uh, thank you so much for everybody that answered those questions uh, or asked me the question. I really loved what you guys had to say. It's always so fun to get insight from everybody out in the audience, and we would love to hear more from you. So, if you haven't already joined the Facebook group, come on over, hop on. I'm going to post a story or question in two weeks, and you'll get your chance to answer it. And uh, in the meantime, though, you can reach us at cast a call at zombiegirls.com and if you enjoy the show please leave us a review on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever it is that you found us all right so that is it for this episode i think dj where else on the internet can they find you uh, well guys uh, the splatter cast is back in session so you can check that out where every other week uh the gang gets together to randomly talk about whatever we feel like less horror theme related more life related but also you can swing over to etsy and find me on the the space muffin spank and um of course uh that's about it really uh i do not do much youtube anymore i got burned out on that business and uh the internet as a whole is become a darker place over the last year or two. So uh, please stick to the happy spots. And uh, um, what about you, Rachel? Where can people find you? Well, if you want to hear me talk about horror movies, you can check me out on the Zombie Girls podcast, where we review horror from a feminist perspective. Um, you can also <laughs> check out the Stream Queens for my friend Mars, who is a total odd bodkin like you. Someday the three of us will hang out and it will be amazing. We review horror films that you can stream on the internet. So Hulu. Prime, Netflix, Shutter, yada yada. And finally, find me on the More Deadly podcast where myself and Ariel review horror films that are directed strictly by the ladies. Woo! Yeah. I also am going to be on another episode, upcoming episode of Here's Johnny, but I don't think that's been announced yet. So you'll have to wait and find <laughs> out what that's about in the future. Um, but yeah, that's plenty of me. <laughs> that's more of me than you'll ever need. So find me in those places. All right, DJ. Take us out. This cast has gone long enough that I may have actually drank three 10-barrel brewing Ooh, beers. So uh, sorry about that, guys, if I got a little slop towards the end. But thanks for listening. Thanks for coming by. And always remember to keep your poke dry. Good night, and we'll see you on another episode of Cast of Cup. Oh, my God. Your poke back. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>